and helping bring baby goats into the world that we raise, you know, for a year or two years that become part of our herd. And like the first time that doe has her first kid and joins like our milking line and I make a cheese that's made from her milk. I'm like, I know where this started. Like I, I have so much appreciation for the, the subtle nuances that it took to bring this into being. And you, you can't do that sort of thing without this like intense feeling of pride. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings, drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? My name is Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. In today's episode, I speak with Aaron Bly, who is a goat cheese maker. So... I don't know about you, but I freaking love cheese. Aaron loves cheese. We're going to be talking a lot about cheese today, and we're also going to be talking about darling little baby goats and Aaron's love of goats. Um, another major sort of thesis of our conversation will be whether or not the idea of the like romantic leave everything behind and go and live on a farm is as cool and romantic as it sounds. Um, I don't know if any of you have thought about doing that before and just like going and living in nature. I know I certainly have. Erin thought that um, when she was first getting into this and she sees a lot of people like that that come to her today that want to work with her. Um, So she will tell us all about sort of the realities of farm life if you have been working white collar jobs prior to um, doing anything like that before. So without further ado, here is Goat Cheese Maker. Aaron, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm yeah. stoked to be here. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I would love if you could start us out with a little bit of your history and your path to being where you are right now, your path to being a dairy farmer with goats, because this is one of those things that I think is so many people get more and more plugged into technology, and so many people have white-collar jobs. Um, it, like I know talking to so many of my friends, there, I'd say like half of my friends have mentioned ideas of like starting farms or starting a commune or this. Well, let's just like go live in the <laughs> yeah. forest or whatever it is to like just get away from stuff. So I feel like it's this very romantic thing. And you are living out this. Ro- and we'll talk more about that later. Like, is it as, is it as romantic as we all have in our heads? But uh, we'll, we'll tackle that later. For right now, just tell us what was your actual path to living out this lifestyle? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually funny that you mentioned that as being like this like romantic ideal, because that's kind of how I came to it, which is very funny because all of people come into like working with me in the same way. And some of them thrive, some of them don't. Um, and for me, it was like, uh, I, so I, I'll start off by saying I, I went to a like small school in upstate New York and um, I, I majored in something absolutely nothing related to farming. Like I was a French literature and political science major, which is basically asking to be unemployed. Yeah, that is an awesome degree. (laughs) But um, I, I ended up, you know, kind of growing as a person in this environment that um, just had a lot of really, really passionate people in it. And it just so happened that I was getting involved in like more of um, like the environmental groups that were on campus, the, um, you know, farm to table food justice groups that were on campus. 
And that brought me to this really great community in upstate New York of these wonderful farms and these farmers markets. And as someone who um, didn't grow up in that kind of environment, it was like intoxicating to me. Like I'm showing up, buying my produce from these people who are telling me the story about how they've made it and, um, you know, where that passion came from and how much of themselves they put into this product. And here it is. And it's, you know, it's beautiful and it's local and they're bringing back all these artists and traditions. And I just, I could not get enough of it. Um, so I, I was experiencing more and more of that, um, you know, at home and then had a really great opportunity to travel abroad as well. And it kind of stoked, um, I spent four months in Western France and it really stoked this passion for cheese that I brought back um, into that local environment when I came, came home. And I, um, I mean, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I grew up on like Cabot mild cheddar. Like it was like Land O'Lakes American cheese and like Cabot mild cheddar was like what you brought out at Christmas when it's like, Oh my goodness, this is the fancy stuff. Yeah, for sure. That's so great. <laughs> and I, I, you know, showed up, uh, at a host family's house, um, when my French was still pretty abysmal. Um, and they like put this like cheese plate out in front of me. It's all covered in like greasy blue cheeses and like, you know, funky moldy rinds and like these cheeses I've never seen before. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm not, I'm not going to know how to say like, I don't want to try this and I'm going to be rude and I'm just going to have to like, I'm just going to have to try it and like, just be brave because I don't know how to say no right now. <laughs> And just like had this experience where I'm putting these like, you know, cheeses into my mouth. Like, oh my, oh my God, I've never, I've never tasted anything like this. Um, so to like come, come back from that experience directly into this environment where I'm talking to all of these people who, who are making this product and like hearing about how much goes into that process was, um, was really, really special for me. Um, that's so cool. Like to get to see the, the perfect consumer side of things. It's funny. Cause I just went to, to France uh, a few months ago and, and I'm a, I'm a huge cheese guy myself. What's so nice is when you go to a park there, it's like almost everyone in the park has cheese, you know, and wine and stuff like that. And, and when you go to a cheese shop, it's just like the level of appreciation is so much higher, you know, and mm -hmm. it's, it must be, it must've been great to be around people in a culture like that where this appreciation is so much higher and the understanding is so much higher to then come back to the people that you knew that were making these things like after you had just seen like the best end of of consumers of their product yeah and there's definitely some more of that um mentality that survived in that culture i mean there are certainly people you know living in france who just go to a supermarket and that's how they they shop for their food but there's also like a very large group who are still like on their you know drive or walk home from work are stopping in at their local baker and buying you know a couple loaves of bread from them or stopping in at their cheese shop and talking about you know where the cheese came from and right exactly yeah that's i guess bread. what i was referring to you yeah. know you're 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 maintaining that um that kind of communication between the producer and the consumer that we're trying to bring back in the u.s through um you know an increase of farmers markets and csas and all of you know these um these continued dialogues between um producer and consumer about where where this food actually comes from and the fact that it doesn't just you know appear on your plate 
and this disassociation that a lot of Americans have with their food is um, is really pervasive. And there are a lot of really wonderful grassroots movements trying to bring it back to, um, you know, kind of a more um, more idealized uh, situation where you where you're really understanding the full depth of what it takes to produce these foods. Yeah, definitely. And I, I went into that as a consumer with this like desire to learn more. So I had like, I graduated, I had, um, you know, I was bouncing around from, you know, job to job and I had a bunch of, um, applications out in like the Boston area for something totally, you know, unrelated and a, a really close friend of mine who had worked on farms before, uh, just kind of, you know, kind of like said it as like a, a one-off, like, oh, I mean, it's going to take you two months, three months to hear back from any of these places. You should go take an internship on a farm. Um, and just, you know, worst case scenario, it's it's awful and you don't want to do it again, but you have this really crazy story to tell for the rest of your life. And I kind of walked in like that, like, oh yeah, I just kind of want to be curious and like see you know, see what the production side of making cheese, this product that I'm so enamored with, is is like. And um, I know, like, hearing those words come out of my mouth as a, you know, cheese producer now is, like, like my, my worst nightmare and my, like, most exciting, um, like, the most exciting thing to hear is you want to hear people passionate, but then you're just sitting there like, oh, God, I don't want to burst your bubble and tell you how hard this is. Right, right. And I, you know, I sent out a whole bunch of applications and this one farm, um, consider Bardwell farm in West Pollitt, Vermont got back to me. And I was like, I, you know, I really want to see if you have any, uh, opportunities in your cheese room for me to intern. And they kind of bounced back with, well, uh, we don't right now, but what we do have is this kidding internship, um, where we need, we need an assistant to help us birth. 150 baby goats over the course of three months are you interested and i'm just kind of sitting there like you want me to do what yes absolutely sure sounds great that's so interesting so yeah tell us more about the thought that went through your head when you got that email because i feel like they would be like okay this is this interesting opportunity but i'm really interested in cheese like am i supposed to just keep going until i find something cheese related or do i take this right now yeah, I mean, the the um, the communication back and forth with them was definitely like, we'd like to have you for this. We'd love to consider you for this um, this internship. And that could become something that, you know, if, you know, I, I think they were actually pre-screening me, which was a very smart thing. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like, oh, yeah, like if you're interested in this and your work ethic is great, we might be able to find you something in the cheese room when summer starts, which is what ended up happening was I moved from the animal husbandry side after that three month period into, uh, the cheese room for the rest of the year that I was there. Um, and, uh, but the words that came up repeatedly in this, um, in this conversation with these two herd managers, um, as they're screening me for this are the words that you described when you first talked about, you know, friends of yours being like, Oh yeah, I want to, you know, it's just so romantic and I want to be in this bucolic environment. And like, it's just so, it's so peaceful. It's so back to the land and all of these kind of like nitty gritty, like buzzwords that make it sound, you know, so appealing were kind of the things that they're like, just letting you know, like, this will be hard. Like you'll be working like 14 hour days and it's going to be like cold and 
you're gonna be like trudging through snow to birth baby goats and like what it like are you gonna be prepared for the first time like you have an infant mortality rate that like pulls at your heartstrings when you're doing this you know when you're experiencing for this first time this very um you know very deep and emotional and raw aspect of dairy farming which is that it's um you know it's it's a very i don't really know quite the word to to describe it it's it's very real you sit there and realize how much um how much is at stake um Mm, that's really interesting when you have animals in your care yeah i i remember the first time that we lost a kid goat that was just you know, too weak and we had been feeding it, you know, like every two hours, keeping it, you know, as warm as possible. And I, um, you know, I'm, I'm there like three weeks in, like so green and like this baby goat, like dies as I'm holding it. And I'm like sitting there, like looking at this guy who's been doing this for like five, six years. And he's like, it's, it's okay. You can give her to me. And I'm like, I, I, and I think they're like looking at that look in my eyes. Like she's going to go home. She's going to pack her bags and she's going to leave. And this is, that breaking point where you're like can I really do this can I deal with these really heartbreaking aspects of rearing these animals knowing that you get this really beautiful connection with them as well um and for some people that's it's too much we're too desensitized to how much goes into caring for it's too desensitized to how much it goes into caring for the animals that actually produce this product that we kind of see on a shelf and think like, Oh yeah, milk comes from animals, but you don't think about what that really means. And kind of repairing that connection is um, something that can be both beautifully illuminating and really give you um, appreciation for what ends up on your plate, or it can be really heartbreaking. Um, when when you think about the fact that it takes a lot to be able to do that job and that people are less and less inclined to start that profession nowadays and that eventually that will mean that we have fewer farmers and there's less food and you know what what will it say um what will it say about the future of our food system if uh no one wants to take on that job anymore (laughs) Yeah, for sure. If everyone just starts making the things that they want, you know, then it's like we're going to have a bunch of like cheese and beer and wine and nobody's going to be farming like lettuce. You know, like, yeah. like that's one thing I haven't heard any of my friends ever say, like, you know what I want? I want to grow like 400 acres of lettuce. Like, that's not a very common refrain, you know, but uh, I'm I'm sure we'll be all right. I, w- I would love to ask you about the 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 actual like physical and mental difficulty of this, especially during that early time. Um, Because again, I feel like so many of us are so far removed from that, that concept and and what that is like exactly. And and clearly like the people that hired you on knew that you would be removed from that and you'd be experiencing it for sort of the first time. So what is it like working these 14 hour days when it's like snowing outside and trudging through the snow and stuff like that? Like, the only thing I feel like that I have in my life that's a parallel that is both physically and mentally demanding and stuff is when you do like a really hard workout or something. And it's mm-hmm. it's like 
hard but it's good at the same time it's like it hurts but part of it hurts good you know and then you feel yeah. like proud of yourself and it, like all this stuff you know um youth sports can be very much that way where you like you push yourself past where you want to but then it's like good is it like that or does it just suck is it like no this just really sucks i i, I don't want to i certainly don't want to paint a um a portrait of it as something that's like bleak because it's it's definitely something that's not for everyone but that's those all those feelings that you just described is a lot of why i do what i'm doing um like i've been in other jobs before where you know i'm i'm putting in a similar amount of of time but when i get to the final product i just don't feel connected to it mm, yeah and that's something that you really get from this is um and i i find that most people you know either you know, business owners or people who have a passion project or, um, you know, people who work really hard and they put their blood, sweat and tears into something and then have something at the end to, you know, hold in their two hands and say, I, I'm responsible for this coming into being. Um, that feeling that you get of, you know, for me, I sit there and I'm, I'm bringing, I'm helping bring baby goats into the world that we raise you know, for a year or two years that become part of our herd. And like the first time that doe has her first kid and joins like our milking line and I make a cheese that's made from her milk. I'm like, I know where this started. Like I, I have so much appreciation for the, the subtle nuances that it took to bring this into being. And you, you can't do that sort of thing without this like intense feeling of, um, pride and kind of like a, a very humbling moment of being like wow <laughs> like that was really hard but look at what i made yeah um, and i think when you see people who choose this um as a profession especially people who didn't grow up in it you know i think there are a lot of people who um who farm for a living because they have a lot of you know, historical appreciation from it, from like a family perspective. Like I know several like multi-generational farmers who are like, I can't imagine doing anything else because I've been brought up on, um, you know, the pride of this profession and understanding how much it, it takes. And the people who kind of come into it as a second, second career or from a different lifestyle and create that appreciation for it are those people with that same passion. Right. And, you know, it's not necessarily that people are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to make like millions of dollars, you know, making goat cheese and raising goats. It's normally the people for whom the um, the the excitement of that connection to what you've created is intoxicating. Yeah. And can't I mean, I've reached a certain point where I'll come home at like kidding season is the worst when it's like March to May and you're like up every every two or three hours feeding, you know, a, a half dozen baby goats and you're still trying to do other things and you're trying to, you know, make sure that all of the, you know, pistons in this business are still running and like your mind is just so like wrung out and people sometimes look at you and they're like, are, like, why do you do this? And, um, I'll, I'll just kind of like stand there and be like, well, how could I not do this? Like, this is amazing. <laughs> they're like, you look like you're about to die. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's fantastic. They're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's cool to think though, you know, it, like you said like people looking at you and thinking like you look like you're going to die and like the difficulty of that, but you contrast that 
it, it, it's like that is your job though that is your career and you contrast that with somebody that's in like a a freaking meeting room in a skyscraper with their boss breathing down their neck and they're just like god like why are you yelling at me right now like I, i'm sorry like yeah. i this report doesn't reflect what you want it to reflect and you know it's like and that's their stress and it's like to me yeah like <laughs> what you're talking about does sound so much better and so much more romantic that like your difficulty yeah. is it seems like a real difficulty when i was in what what back when i had a real job <laughs> like prior to me having this podcast i would always like it was really difficult for me when there would be quote unquote bad things like happening uh at the company where like we weren't hitting our numbers or whatever and it's like the types of messages and reports that get sent out and the the talk it it all just seems so fake and like not real you know it's like what like what are we talking about here like sales are down like five percent like so what you know like it'll come back up or it won't and we you know it's like i but it's like a lot of like posturing sort of you know that doesn't seem real like there's something about it that just never seemed very real to me but what you're talking about is real like i woke up with this goat at 2 a.m like that is a real quote-unquote problem and i really fixed it you know like it's these are real things. It's not some sort of intangible, like we need to grow these margins by 2% within, you know, two years or something. Yeah. And I feel like tangible is the right word for it because that's, you know, I think people have a lot of trouble rationalizing, you know, concrete problems with abstract problems. Like I'll come home and be physically exhausted because I've been lifting milk buckets all day or, you know, like, feeding baby goats and like actually tasking my body. And that's something that people around me can see and, you know, can appreciate because there's, there's something visible. And, you know, while that's, that's all very hard, it's, it's not that much harder than what most people in an office environment will go with. The only problem is that, you know, people can't see the mental strain that those people are experiencing. So they sit there and they say, oh, I could never do that. But you do it. You do it every day. Yeah. <laughs> you That's you a sit really there good and do it every day and just no one sees. Whereas I sit here and I do these things and everyone's like, it's so hard. I could never do something that hard. Um, and they're too afraid to even fathom it because they can see the concrete, you know, result of it. And they're like, oh, no, that's that's too real for me. Yeah, that's <laughs> such a good point. There, there's so much. There's so much strength in what people go through in in all of their other jobs that people who are sitting there being like i really want to do this and i'm too afraid to um they they are underestimating themselves <laughs> yeah yeah so aaron i would love to know then about the people you mentioned earlier um you know now that you have your own dairy that you you know bring on people for internships and this and that and like some some do really well and some don't and like a lot of these people come to you with the same mindset that you had when you started which is this is this really cool concept i love cheese like this is going to be so fun and cool and romantic and some of the people just don't thrive the ones that don't thrive why do you think they don't like what is sort of the common denominator that you see ah uh, see it's, it's hard because what i would say is um is that there's like some degree of lack of passion in some people but it's 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 probably too, too stark of a comparison. So what we tend to see is people getting really exhausted by the behind the scenes. They want to be bottle feeding baby goats. They want to have their hands in a cheese vat. 
And what they don't appreciate is that 90% of my job is washing dishes. Like (laughs) everything's got to get like washed and sanitized and has to have an acid rinse before you milk goats and after you milk the goats and then before it gets moved into a tank and then it gets moved into another tank and then the cheese gets processed and all the tables have to be cleaned. (laughs) And then, you know, after that you have to go with everything that's in the cave and then you're going from washing equipment to washing cheese. Um, and just so much of what, um, so much of it is passive and kind of uninteresting to get to those, you know, maybe two hours in my 14 hour day that are actually exciting. Yeah. You know, the people who thrive are the people who appreciate that, um, the people who thrive are kind of the, the types of people who say, you know, if there's not like. A shadow in my life I don't get to appreciate the light so it's the people who are sitting there being like oh yeah like all of this you know monotonous stall mucking or dish cleaning is part of that story and it's, it's so, part of what it takes yeah. to create this <laughs> it's so interesting because I've always had such a hard time with social media because like I hate doing social media and I didn't even have like personal social media accounts before I started half hour intern. And it's like, I always tell myself like, Oh, maybe, you know, that's just not for me, but it's like something also that I know that I have to do. It's like literally every job has the things that you don't want to do, but you have to do it. And it's like, those things are so different. Like, cleaning poop out of stalls or being on social media but to me i would rather clean poop out of you know it's like just whatever type of person you are and like every job's gonna have the things for you it reminds me so much of this quote that i heard from wayne dyer which is from some some old like uh taoist master or something like that and it goes uh it's about meditation and like reaching enlightenment and it goes uh before you meditate chop wood and carry water and after you meditate you have to chop wood and carry water. And mm-hmm. the point is that like, just because you reached enlightenment or you have reached this new state of wonderful Zen peacefulness or whatever it is, that doesn't mean that you're no longer living in the world anymore. Like you still need to like chop wood to light your fire at night. You still need to carry water so that your family has drinking water and stuff. It doesn't excuse because you've reached this great place. It doesn't excuse you from just doing the regular everyday things that like are part of life. Yeah. And the trick is finding the beauty and being mindful in those moments and appreciating that that's part of, you know, the arc of part of it. Yeah. You know, instead of seeing it as I have to do these crappy things to get to the good stuff is seeing all of that as good stuff. It's just some of it's more, you know, some of it looks better on social media and some of it doesn't. Yeah. You know, I, I struggle with that projection that I'm like, as a business owner, I have to, you know, show all of the best things and you're, you're discouraged to show the bad. You know, I, I remember seeing another, um, dairy owner share a post on their social media page of the first kid they lost that year, you know, and saying like, Hey, you guys are getting so much excitement out of, you know, seeing all these pictures of our like happy thriving baby goats and, you know, you have to, you have to appreciate that this comes with it. And, you know, I, I remember seeing that and having her like kind of get some really, really heartfelt response from, you know, her fan base from it, but also kind of like some, 
some backlash, like a little bit of people being like, you shouldn't show that part. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't make your business look good. And it's like, you're right. It doesn't make my business look good. It makes my business look real. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you have to decide whether or not you share that because I, I have a lot of people, especially people who want to get involved with the kids who, um, you know, they want to see that part and I want to share it with them. And I'm, I'm a little afraid to share that part with them. Um, and then you have to be there to, to, you know, be prepared to support that realization that, oh my gosh, this comes, this comes with this territory. And, um, it's new for many people and, you know, it's, it's, it's great to see the way that they feel about it afterwards. Like I love watching people who have, um, kind of gone from being disconnected to their food to, you know, ha- having a broader appreciation for it, either from, you know, working on a farm or, you know, volunteering at a farmer's market or talking to people who are creating. And then just kind of when they sit down, um, you know, Americans have this really interesting thing about like, we don't sit down and eat mindfully anymore. We don't sit down and look at our plate and think about where it came from and appreciate, you know, the variances and tastes in the same way. Um, you know, we're eating on the go or we're, um, you know, grabbing, you know, grabbing a, a wrap at like a local store and like eating it as we're driving to this other place. And, you know, food has stopped being something that um, we really think about and seeing people come back to that and being like, well, I, I came to your farm and I, you know, I bottle fed these baby goats and I watched how long it took you to make this cheese. And like now when I have like sit here with the salad covered in goat cheese on the top, like I'm just like, wow that's like, this is something really kind of amazing. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, and try to just taste the goat cheese here for a minute and then try to just (laughs) taste the arugula and then try to see how they taste together and not just every bite just being this this thing that you're eating. Yeah, and to have someone come, like that's my absolute favorite part of this job is having people come up to me at a farmer's market and be like, wow, um, like this, you know, I, I loved, I thought I loved goat cheese before. And then I tasted this and like, you can taste the difference. You can tell the goats are on pasture or like, I'm hearing the story and like thinking about how much goes into it. And like, thank you for, there are people who thank me for making their relationship with food better. And like, you just kind of sit there like in your little chair at a farmer's market. You're like, I, I had this impact on you. And they're like, yeah, it's really great. And I'm like, oh, thank you. That's awesome. That's so cool. Great feeling. It's very fun. Yeah. So, Aaron, let's fast forward a little bit on your path to being a dairy farmer to the point of how the heck do you have your own dairy farm now? I would have to imagine that that internship where you were learning all this stuff, they were not paying you like $200,000 a year or something. So, like, where did you get the funds? Like, I think this is another thing that a lot of young people always wonder about is you see another young person that owns their own business and it's like, how though like like where did the money come from what happened here how how did you actually have your own dairy farm versus just working at someone else's i I honestly like sometimes i look back on it and i'm like oh my god did i just do that on pure bravado (laughs) what was i thinking but um you know for for me it was there's people like talk about it. It's kind of hard to see myself portrayed in, in the media or like that. I'm supposed to project this, this story talking about myself because no one sees the people behind the scenes. Like no one sees like me 
the year that I was working on another farm and like contemplating this and like the people, my friends and family that sat at that table and um, gave me enough support, both emotionally, you know, financially, or just with their, their time and their mental capacity to be like, no, you can do this. Like this, this is a possibility. Um, and it's just going to take some ingenuity and it's going to take blood, sweat and tears, but like this could work. Um, because it's, I, I don't know if I would have made the jump without that. Um, because I'm sitting there and the only, the only comparable thing, like I was in a position where I hadn't bought a house. I hadn't done anything that was like this big financial risk. And I'm, you know, signing student loans was the only thing. And like, I signed my student loans at 18, kind of like, I don't really understand what this means yet. Yeah. One day I'll be Um, paying this. One day I'll be paying this. And, you know, at, at 25, I was sitting there you know, doing the same thing for this business, like understanding what it, what it meant and what that risk was and what I was, um, you know, what I was putting at risk, um, that I was, you know, taking out, you know, a, a, a personal loan to, you know, finance buying some of the equipment because there was collateral. And then there were some things that I had to take out, you know, personal, uh, you know, private loans from like friends and family understanding that like all right like if i default on this other loan you know i might have to file for bankruptcy like if i default on these personal loans from like people who you know really believe in my dream like does that mean someone's like retirement is at risk does that mean that you know these people will never see their money again and like to sit there and oh man that's so hard because then that's also tied into like like, your I, i believe like you believe in me enough, but I believe in myself enough to take this risk. With, yeah. You know, these great. things, um, it's sobering. And, um, I think it's probably the reason more people don't make the jump because it's, uh, you, I think we think of money in a very abstract way, you know, and it's like, you know, debit cards and like everything that in your life is like plastic or is on paper, but it's never, you know, concrete, like so much of my life is livestock. <laughs> like I sit there and the value of, you know, everything that I've built is in equipment and animals and, you know, all of, all of these very physical things. And you start to, you know, think about money in a very different way. When, um, when I now sit here and say, all right, well, um, I need to think about uh, business decisions that I'm making as as a way to say, you know, how how will that affect the um, the life and stability of these animals who are in my care or these um, you know these employees that um, their livelihood relies on me being able to um, to keep this business running and you know pay them a, a living wage um, and it's a lot of it's a lot of responsibility from from that standpoint and um i i would not have done that without the support that i had from friends family my community who sat here and said there's there's no way you should not pull this trigger like really cool the the this community needs what you can can produce which is a more um you know a more compassionate and more sustainable dairy product and something that they're 
you know, they're asking for and you should take the risk and do this thing. <laughs> it's interesting. It's uh, At what it's, point uh, in your journey did you decide to pull the trigger? So how long had you been working for another dairy before you were like, I need to do my own? So it was about um, three years. Um, so we're, it was three years before and now we're to three years afterwards. So we're, that was kind of right in the middle of this, this whole arc. Um, where I had been working for Consider Barbell for a year, and then I moved back home with um, with two goats that I had um, brought with me from that farm, and I was working on another farm here under a, a really amazing um, farm owner who does a very broad stream. Like he's got the whole the whole mix besides dairy. So he's got um, you know vegetables, a retail store. He produces um, you know he raises animals for meat and egg consumption and you know he's got this very um very large farm with a lot of moving parts and that was a very enriching experience for me to see that in the works and for him to even give me the time of day to be willing to be a um a mentor in that capacity um and during that time I was working for him full-time and I was also volunteering at a lot of other dairies in the area trying to kind of see I, I kind of like, I pulled the trigger knowing, um, having, having been very confident that I had a list of things that I didn't want to do. Um, not quite so confident on the list of things that I did want to do, but I feel like that was, um, that's normally when people say, Hey, I want to do this. The thing that I tell them first is, all right, make sure you volunteer in several dairies and you know, that you see a whole bunch of farms and you see, you know, things that you like, things that you don't like. Um, and just that visibility of, you know, so many different ways of doing things mm. will make it very clear to you what's going to work for you and what won't. Right. Um, so I had kind of gotten to that point and it was that, that mentor, um, Tendercrop farm is, uh, where we have, where we rent all of our land from now. Um, and who's allowed us to build this facility on their property. And I kind of approached him with this idea. And, you know, he's, he's a farmer in his fifties. He's been doing this his entire life. Um, so he's very excited to see someone young, excited about farming, um, and very, very supportive, but also he's a very frank person. So I was like, I'm going to pitch this idea to him because I know he's going to like, just look right at me and be like, that's a stupid idea. It's a stupid idea. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be real with you, Aaron. I hate that idea. Yeah. Right. No, he's that type of person, which was why when he's like, no, no, I think that's a great idea. Cause he had this barn that was just like derelict. I'm like, Matt, how do you, um, how do you feel about me putting a, uh, putting a dairy in this barn? He's like, I could be down for that. I'm like, all right. <laughs> and we like sat down over the next year and kind of like built this, um, this business model and, you know, this dream. And I mean, the fact that he even let me consider doing this here is, kind of like mind boggling to me in the same way that it's kind of mind boggling me to me that those two dairy managers at consider Bardwell were like, yeah, this girl's green. She's never worked on a farm. Let's give her a chance. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but I think there are a lot of people in the farming community who know you kind of got to do that. You got to take a chance on people because otherwise you're going to have this generation of farmers retiring and there are just not that many young people ready to take that place. And mm. it's going to, it's going to really change the way our food system works. If those, you know, those old school farmers kind of phase out of 
farming and there's nothing to replace it with. So you it's like here, especially like I love being a part of the, um, the community I'm, I'm based in the North shore of Massachusetts. And, um, there's just this wonderful community of like really innovative young farmers who are like just trying to like dismantle this old way of doing things and like having that having that group to like bounce ideas off of is completely invaluable um because it's just all these people are like well that doesn't work let's try this and i'm like oh my god that's so cool thank, thank goodness for just people running business on a tank full of spunk like <laughs> <laughs> totally totally that's so great um all right aaron let's do a few rapid fire cheese related questions first of all how often do you eat cheese now all the time <laughs> it uh for for a while it was necessity like we were building this on bones and i was just like what do i have like in the bank that i could spend money on oh cheese so i was just eating like all of my own cheese and like trading uh trading cheese for other food and um i just i don't know i don't i don't know if my doctor will be as excited about my cholesterol level <laughs> Uh, gosh, I can't stop. I really honestly can't stop. <laughs> that's freaking great. I, that's super cool too about the, having the bartering system come back in and like trading your cheese for stuff. Oh yeah. And it, it's nice cause it's, it's a, it's a valuable, it's a valuable trade. I'll sit at farmer's markets and I have people be like, you want, you want vegetables today? I'm like, give me all of the vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are some things that you notice now when you eat cheese that you did not notice before? Oh, all the complexity of, um, of the flavor of it. Like I can't, um, like I just, I remember being, you know, anywhere and having, you know, the, the party fair be, you know, cheese and crackers and people are just kind of, you know, like popping things into their mouth and not really thinking about it. And it's just kind of, you know, this really easy um, easy thing for consumption. And like, I can't, I can't put cheese in my mouth anymore without like sitting there and being like, all right, can I taste, um, you know, the complexity of this aging process? Or like, can I tell what type of pasture these animals were on because of the the quality of the milk or like the degree to which it was aged based on what flavor profiles are coming up? Wow. Um, it's, it, I mean, it kind of makes me sound a little pretentious when I'm at a party being like, oh my God, you can totally like tell that these guys are on nettles and they're like, um, can you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, question, um, you mentioned the, the crackers part, the, like now that you are that into cheese, do you still eat cheese with crackers, bread, stuff like that? Or do you pretty much only eat cheese by itself? Um, I like to, um, I definitely like to try things on their own. Like I, I have a lot of like excitement and respect for the people who come up to my farmer's market booth. And the first thing they want to try is the plain. Like we've got a lot of really fun, exciting flavors. And they're like, I want to try the plain. I want to see what it tastes like on its own. And I'll definitely have some of that. Like as a cheese consumer, I'll want to taste the cheese first and then decide what I pair it with. I love that. I'm exactly that way with pizza. Like I have to try a place's plain cheese. Like if, if somebody's told me a place is a good pizza place, I have to try a plain cheese pizza before I'll try anything else from them. You know, and that way with vanilla ice cream, people yeah. are like, you're ordering <laughs> vanilla ice cream. And I'm like, I need to know if their vanilla is good. Because 
is everything else will be good <laughs> right right yeah and it's like if it's like just some carton you're buying at the grocery store or whatever that doesn't matter or you know if i'm getting yeah. like low-end pizza that doesn't matter but if someone has told you like oh you got to go get ice cream from this place like that what you're saying totally makes sense then you know yeah but there's there's a lot of like magic and chemistry that comes into pairing things so you know you'll say like oh will you eat cheese with bread or do you just eat it plain but like now i just have that like appreciation of i have certain cheeses that if i can find like a good like nice airy sourdough bread and drizzle it with honey i'm just like oh my god you don't even understand it'll make the cheese so much better <laughs> yeah yeah for sure so there's um, there's a little bit of both definitely cool um talk about working with goats instead of cows um is that just a cost and size thing is there something in particular with goat cheese that you like a lot more than than cow's cheese mm -hmm. so there's um there are a lot of aspects of that for me the decision was i couldn't i um some people will say like oh i raise animals to you know because i want to make cheese and i want to have that and i say like i mine's kind of the opposite like i love making cheese but i make cheese so that i can hang out with my goats <laughs> like, i make cheese to support my goat habit yeah um, because they're just the funniest, like absolutely the funniest animals you've ever spent time with in your life. They're, you know, they're just wit smart and they're so cheeky and um, they've all got, I mean, I've, I have a herd of 45 right now and they all have different personalities. Like I'll walk through and if I was blindfolded, I could tell at least like 15 to 20 of them which goats are which wow because they're like that distinctive like they come up and you're like i know exactly who this is yeah um and they um you know i know a lot of people who are in like cow dairies and they'll they'll say the same thing um but i don't know if it's just for me um but i make a connection with dairy goats in a way that i have not bonded with any other you know any any other animal that way yeah. and that's not to say that there aren't like the sweetest sheep and cows out there but like goats are where it's at for me <laughs> do you have any favorite goats on your property or is that like trying to choose a favorite child i feel like it's trying to choose a favorite child in that everyone kind of does but no one talks about it <laughs> <laughs> so who are your favorite goats and why oh so i have um i have two that i first came here with um bonnie and kipper and they were some of the first two that i had birthed at consider bardwell farm and they were the two that i left there with um and kipper especially was like she was there was they were like two twins her brother was like eight pounds and she was like four and a half pounds like she was just this little like pint-sized little nugget and i swear like she was so little and i was so afraid she was gonna get crushed that like i just carried her around in my jacket for like a good <laughs> good like two weeks before margo and alex the herd managers were like this needs to stop you're gonna steal this goat and like this is not cool um uh so she um like she she has got a special place in my heart um but it's always it's honestly it's the naughty ones i always like the naughty ones so you'd think like the ones that are like really good um you know that behave themselves and they're angels on the stand that i would be like oh yeah this one it's always the saucy ones so it's the ones like that are, I've got a gate opener and for some reason, like she's the bane of my existence and I'm always shaking my head at her and you know, she's, 
she's the one that like it's like squeaky wheel gets the grease <laughs> yeah yeah well because it shows like there's a little something more going on upstairs you know so probably yeah. like a more human connection yeah but i have like i have ones that will like barrel their way to the front like when i have people coming to visit they'll like barrel their way to the front of the gate so that they can get the most rubs and i'm like yeah girl you know it's <laughs> that's so cute what do you do with the male goats that you give birth to? not that you give birth to but you know that are birthed yeah. on the farm um, so we're actually, um, it, that was a very hard, um, a very hard thing for me. Cause I, I actually went into this cheese making experience as a, as a vegetarian and started, um, started eating meat again, kind of as a way to close that loop because I was, you know, not entirely unaware, but not really understanding the gravity of how much of, um, how much meat and dairy are connected. Um, because, you know, kind of the industry standard is that all of the boys are raised for meat, um, and all of the girl kids, you know, who have, you know, value, um, quote unquote, in, in the dairy industry are, you know, the money makers. And, um, that's been something that as we're like trying to like figure out how to make the business more profitable and to kind of, you know, decide where we're going to, um, where we're going to, I don't want to say cut corners, but like where we're going to be, you know, have a strong line about where we spend our money. That's been the one thing that I haven't quite been able to let go of. Like we'll hold on to our, um, our young kids for much longer than is smart because we're committed to finding, um, finding homes for them in which the, um, the, the kids are treated with the respect uh, and love that I think they deserve. Mm, mm. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, whether for financial reasons or because they, they don't, you know, have a strong belief in it will, you know, the, the goal is to put the young boys on a truck to go to auction as quickly as possible. Um, because they see them as a byproduct of the dairy industry and as, you know, collateral. Right. Um, and every day you have them, it's just more feed and stuff. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's not to say that I don't, um, you know, I don't have support or respect for people who raise animals for meat or um, who end up raising goats for meat. Like we, um, I actually made sure there were six in our first year that we um, we ended up raising for meat, and I um, I kind of like had that as like a personal growing experience. I'm like, either you can handle this, or you shouldn't be doing what you're doing, um, because those two things are connected. And it was. Um, it was a very difficult thing for me to, um, to kind of like have that progression with, because I, I just said, if I'm going to do this, I need to make sure that everything is done right. These animals need to spend their life on pasture. They need to be treated with, you know, respect and with love when we're transporting them, I'm going to be the one who does it so that they're not with some unknown person for the last, you know, 12 hours of their life. Um, I went through a lot of research finding a, um, you know, processing facility that um, was, you know, meeting animal welfare approved standards and um, that I felt comfortable with could, you know, could have a, uh, an environment in which those animals could die with dignity. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a difficult thing to do. Yeah. Um, and we, um, we do spend a lot of time screening for uh homes for those goats that um you know if they're if they're 
planning to raise goats for meat will meet all of those standards or we we prefer um finding pet quality homes for them which um is is not the hardest thing in the world to do right now because for some reason baby goats are like the new baby cat videos um which is great for me but uh, i i do have to like then have that screening process with people where i'm like i know they're so cute but you know that goats live for 12 to 18 years right it's like adopting a dog yeah yeah um and yeah it's um you know it's something as we grow it's it's really easy to find great homes for 12 baby goats and it's a lot more work to find, you know, great homes for 80 baby goats, which will be what we're expecting this upcoming spring. Holy crap. Um, That's crazy. So we just, we really, um, you know, work, work pretty hard to make sure that all those goats find homes that will, you know, for, for what other, whatever length of their life will treat them with, you know, dignity and, and give them, you know, the respect that they deserve because they're really amazing animals. <laughs> is there like a website for you guys right now? Like where you, where you post the fact that you have goats? Most of the time it's done on our Facebook page, but um, we're, we're hiring on someone this upcoming spring whose sole purpose is going to be finding, um, you know, finding good homes for all of our goats with people who know what they're doing. Cause it's kind of like, people are like, Oh yeah. Like I'm, I'm going to get this goat. And like, I don't know. I, I, I know a lot of people who have, um, you know, like rescues for dogs and they see the same thing that people are like, Oh, a puppy. And I'm like, yes, I know, but that puppy will get bigger. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. You know, you have to start, um, in the same way that you're edu- educating people about their food, you are educating, you know, people about what, um, when you take an animal into your home, what it takes to give them a great quality of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the life cycle like? For a dairy goat, you mentioned that they live for about twelve to fourteen years. At what point do they start producing milk, and then how long do they produce milk until? So we, um, when we raise up our young ones, we generally decide whether or not they're because they'll go into um, they'll go into heat cycles at about six months of age. Um, but we don't we generally don't breed them that early because they're just not the right size for it. Um, it would be like the equivalent of, you know, there are 12 year old girls who could have a kid, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the healthiest thing. Right. Right. Um, so we'll, um, we'll generally make that assessment based on, um, you know, age, weight, uh, what their body condition is like, whether or not they have, you know, extra weight to like gain or lose. Um, it ends up being at around, um, 18 months to two years of age that they are bred for the first time. Um, so that means that they're normally freshening, having their first kid for the first time, um, at two years to two and a half years of age. And, um, you know, we, if they come into heat, we'll, we'll allow them to breed, um, past that point, um, up until about, um, eight years of age is where we start seeing, um, goats having birthing complications or increased risk in pregnancy. Um, you know, either infant mortality rates that are, are higher or, um, you know, death rates from, you know, complications in pregnancy that are, you know, beyond what we want to put them at risk for. And that's generally when we'll retire our milking goats. And we'll either, you know, they at that point, they put eight years of their life into, you know, supporting 
us and feeding our family. And we um, we like to give them the opportunity to retire without um, any strain after that point. So some of them stay here with us, like the ones that I'm most attached to. <laughs> and I cannot ever, you know, consider rehoming. And for the rest of them, we um, we rehome them to places that are essentially like the dog equivalent of a forever home. People who are like, you know, this animal can't produce. She just needs a place to, you know, graze pasture and, you know, be cared for and, you know, be appreciated and loved. And there are a lot of people who have expressed um, very strong interest, especially in an area where we have got a lot of people who are looking for um, companions for their older horses. Mm. And that to be like, they'll be like, oh my God, our, like, our horse needs two buddies. And they'll like, you know, take two of our retired goats and, you know, I'll get to, it's nice to have them close by too, because I'll get to go and see them like out in pasture with this one horse and they're just messing with the poor horse. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Um, All right, Aaron, we have done all this talking and we still have yet to even talk about cheese making itself. So how, if you can try to do this in like five minutes or something, how the heck is cheese made? Uh, what, how much time does it take? What are the tools that you use? What are, how, what about like other ingredients that you use besides the goat's milk? Yeah, I'll give you, um, I'll give you the two. So we do two different styles of cheese. We have one is a soft cheese and that's all goat's milk. And then we do several hard cheeses as well. Um, some of them are all goat, some are goat and cow blend and some are all cow's milk. Um, and those two processes, uh, start the same and end very differently. Um, right now we're pasteurizing all of our milk, um, but the soft cheese, we have to, anything that's, uh, six weeks and younger in the U S has to be pasteurized. We have the option down the line to do raw milk for our hard cheeses, but we've, um, we've been pretty happy with pasteurizing them at the moment. It kind of gives us, um, the ability to, um, tweak, uh, tweak the flavor more consistent, uh, more consistently, um, so, so just really quickly, if I could interject here. So this is something that uh, I actually learned on a, on a previous uh, episode of, of my own podcast. But in case people didn't listen to that or don't remember, the main difference between a cheese being hard or soft is just the length of time. Right. So that's what you were saying about, like, uh, the USDA or whoever it is doesn't allow you to do raw milk for things that are six weeks or younger. So that's why you were saying that you cannot do that with a soft cheese because soft cheese is made quickly. It takes more time to make a hard cheese. Yes. So length of time is going to be good. And then how you, um, how you handle the curd at the beginning determines how high the, um, you know, moisture content is. So most fresh cheeses are going to have a high moisture content and they're going to be fairly young. Um, you can have some fresh cheeses that have a low moisture content and they're still young and they would still have to be pasteurized, but that tends to be, um, what, you know, what makes for the best styles is that, that youth and that that high moisture content hmm. so um for like our soft chef we'll pasteurize it and then we acidify it slowly overnight and like hand ladle it and the the yield in that ends up being like a 50 50 like most of it will that 50 percent will get you know drained out in the way when we start cutting that curd and you'll be you know cutting out the the milk solids from the excess liquid so the way in the, um, in the cheese and, you know, that will be a process that happens over the course of three days. We'll pasteurize on day one, set it overnight, um, to acidify. We ladle it day two. And then on day three, we're salting packing and you can have that like three day process from when this milk was in a goat to when it's, you know, on your plate. 
Wow. Crazy. Really exciting. Um, and it's also, you know, it's that tends to be when most people think of goat cheese, what they think of is that soft spreadable, you know, what you're crumbling on salads. Um, but we also do, you know, a hard cheese. Um, we do both a Sardo and a Cheddar Jack style, um, which will, you know, kind of have that range in flavor that you'd see similar to like a Swiss and a, you know, a cheddar, you know, there'll be similar texture, but the flavor can, you know, range pretty widely. Um, so we'll do those styles. And for that one, you do the same process, you pasteurize, but then you're adding a, um, a culture and a rennet with the goal of, instead of getting it to solidify over the course of 12 to 18 hours, getting it to do that within the course of 45 minutes so that you end up with this nice firm curd that hasn't dropped too far in acidity. Um, and you can kind of like cut into cubes. It ends up being like, you make this big vat. We add a, a vegetarian rennet, a microbial rennet, um, that makes the, the cheese suitable for vegetarians as well. And, um, that, um, that will kind of just make a giant vat of milk jello. Like it's, it's actually really strange. Like every time I bring someone in for that for the first time, kind of just show them that you can put your hand on top of the vat and just like shake the whole vat of curd. Yeah. Yeah. And whereas in that soft cheese, you know, you'd be ladling it out to separate that curd from whey for this one, we'll cut it into cubes um, in the vat. And then you cook the, the curds in like warm way until they start kind of forming a skin around them. So that you can drain the way off and then press those curds into a form. And that, you know, that whole process will be done over the course of like eight to nine hours. But whereas that's the active process for that hard cheese, we then, you know, put it on press and take it off the next morning. And then depending on whether we did that cheddar jack or that sardo style, we're bringing it into our cave to age for anywhere from six months to nine months. Is a cave a uh, like a fake term and it's just a, like a refrigerator or something or is it an actual cave? It can be. So we have um, we have one that's kind of like splitting splitting center. Um, so we built a, you know, quote unquote cave, like a concrete cave. And we're um, it's at um, it's at surface level um, and we have to artificially cool it down to 55 degrees with like a 85 percent humidity um which is traditionally what you would find if you had that cave six feet underground or like into a hill which is a lot of people who have that kind of um you know ability you know for topography of their land choose to do like we have a a really wonderful um neighboring farm another goat dairy who you know built this cave they've got this like big incline in their um in their pasture and they built this cave into it and it's it's gorgeous. That's kind of like the the be all end all is having the natural cave. Yeah, for sure. So you can kind of do you can do a variation. You can be a um, you know a, a home cheesemaker, and you can you know fake a cave out of like a refrigerator and just dial it down so that it's you know not running as cold. And you have to put a humidifier in there to get the humidity right. You can do something like what I'm doing, which is kind of in the middle, or you can do the whole natural cave. Or you can go the whole kit and caboodle and find like a real honest to goodness cave. But <laughs> yeah, don't even make your own. You just got to go find one. Yeah, don't even make your own. The um the the health department uh, isn't super happy about that one, but that's <laughs> what you see a lot of in like traditional European cheese making. Yeah. Is that that's such a um you know traditional aspect of cheese making that they would never mess with. Like, oh my god, you're not going to put this in a real cave. Like you like that's that's the 
that's the real thing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Um, yeah, we'll have that two, those two variations. Um, and then there's a lot that you can do. It's kind of crazy when you think about the fact that, you know, cheese, for all of those cheeses that I just described, um, for the plain flavors, the only ingredients that you have are milk, salt, rennet, and culture. And you just have this huge range in flavor, texture, um, you know, just profile of, you know, what you're, what you're getting from a flavor profile in your, in your mouth at the end of it and what that experience is like, um, with those, those few ingredients. What in a cheese, (laughs) when you are having a cheese like this, gives it almost like salt crystals, like inside of it? Like, what is that? Oh, the salt, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. I just uh, said like the dumbest question of all time. Well, actually, what you're describing, you tend to see um, that like crystallizing is actually a a product of the aging process. Mm -hmm. Um, And the texture um, feels like a salt crystal, but it tends up like uh, ends up giving more of like a sharpness, Mm -hmm. um, like a little bite to it. Yes. And that's something you'll see in like extra aged cheddars, um, like long aged goudas. Um, and that will, um, that will be something that, uh, you'll see the longer you age a product, Like the only product that we have that with is our Sardo, which is eight months, which is about the earliest that you'll see any of that character. Um, you may see it in, you know, a, uh, a two month aged Gouda much more substantially, but you'll start seeing it, um, past like right around that year mark. Um, you can also do like a soft cheese and have whole salt crystals in it, but those will dissipate over time. And something that if you can get it nice and fresh, you'll, you know, still have that little crunch to it. But I, I'm not quite sure which of the two you're describing. No, but, the, uh, the latter you're talking about, like in hard cheeses, like like aged cheddars and, and Gouda and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it's it's not actually the salt. It's just something that no. develops over time. Yeah. So my question wasn't the dumbest question after all. You were way too hard on yourself. That was actually a very good question. All right. Awesome. That's something that you'll actually see when you're like comparing like two hard cheeses side by side, like an Alpine style. Um, The the quality that you might see of, you know, complexity, if you see those crystals in it, you're you're you've got a pretty good bet that you're looking at a a very long aged cheese. Okay, cool. Um, All right, Aaron, let's start to wind this thing down. I would love it if before we sign off and do advice, if you can tell people about you ending up on the New York Times just a few weeks ago, which is so freaking badass. Um, And so what this article is about is you naming cheese after really badass women in history. Rather than just giving it a traditional cheese name, you decided to uh, start giving these cheeses these awesome uh, like like female names. Talk about that idea, um, what the response has been to that, uh, and then some of your favorite names that you have given cheeses. Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is, um, I'm, I tend to be a pretty raging feminist. So <laughs> when people actually want to talk about that, I'm really excited. Um, but this actually came about as, um, I mean, just in the progression of my business, I, I don't know what happened, but it was like, I just, the universe was sending me these really amazing women. Um, so my, my business is, you know, woman owned, 
um, almost entirely woman run. My brother's the only outlier and he's a very outspoken feminist. Um, so the, it just kind of ended up being this natural progression in, um, you know, I got to a point where I was like, all right, we, we've been a- naming our cheeses, you know, things like that described them. Like I'd be like, I'd have a peppercorn cheddar jack and it didn't have a name yet. And I just wanted it to have this really good name that really spoke to what, um, you know, what the people on this farm were most passionate about. Um, because I love that when you're like finding a cheese and you have like something and it'll have like a really cheeky name. Like there's a, a woman, lazy lady farm up in uh, Northern Vermont. And she has like the cheekiest names. And every time I see hers, I buy it like just because I love it. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, but I made, I ended up making this hard cheese on election day um, with so much hope in my heart, ready to be like, all right, I'm going to name this cheese, Madam President. It's going to be amazing. And uh, yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> and I, you know, as it's aging, I'm looking at it in the cave and I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to name this cheese? And, um, you know, it was, it was ready right before the, um, the woman's March, um, in DC. Um, and I, I'm also a giant nerd. Um, and I was like, you know what? I I have a name for this. I'm going to name it after my favorite resistance leader. And this is going to be general Leia Organa. Uh (laughs) That's Did you see the new movie yet? Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) <laughs> yeah she has like a really i'm not going to spoil anything but she has like a, a very interesting scene in that movie but anyways uh continue continue yes yeah. so like this is this is where my mind goes when you're a giant nerd and you're a feminist so um you know we we named that cheese i i you know one of the things about being on a farm all the time is it's very hard to leave for an extended period of time and all i wanted to do was go to that women's march in dc and I was like, I can't. And what I ended up doing was sending, you know, some cheese with friends down to like the Boston March. Just like, this is my small contribution into the resistance. Like, this is this is what I've got. This is what I can give you. And everyone was really, really excited about the idea. And, um, you know, I just, I kind of kept rolling with it. And it was a really wonderful um, experience for me because I, um, you know, I am in a very, um, masculine dominated field uh it's it's kind of like very problematic long term like having people like constantly refer to you as a lady farmer and i'm like what the hell are you serious yes like and it's like (laughs) try and run with it and be like yeah lady boss but like kind of you're just like ah like you get that look like oh yeah girls don't really farm and for me like having so many really strong beautiful women in my life so many of whom farm i'm like let me show you how women farm. yeah that is absolutely Um, insane and you know i just finally had this opportunity to um you know showcase in this product that i had worked so hard on these women who had really really inspired me over the course of my life and who had inspired you know people who i'd worked with and other you know other people who work on this farm, both male and female, um, who were just like, wow, like these are like, these are the types of people we want, you know, leading, you know, leading a new generation of women to say like, this is, this is what you can do. You can start a farm. You can make badass cheese. You can do anything that you set your mind to. And these were, you know, these really, um, strong, sometimes, you know, 
uh, controversial women who had shaped shaped me to a point where I could say, yeah, I can totally do this. <laughs> and, um, you know, we had all through last season, we had some were seasonal, some I'm still producing. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is one of my favorite cheeses. We had a Misty Copeland, uh, Josephine Baker, and Amelia Earhart, a um, Marie Curie, a Frida Kahlo. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of women on that list who are very near and dear to my heart. So I just get my my tiny little ability to uh, personify them in cheese. <laughs> That's super cool. Tell us a little bit more about the response. Like, uh, obviously, like you said, like women have been excited about it. But it, do you actually get to, like, do people come to the farm ever to buy cheese? Like what? Like, do you ever get to meet purchasers face to face and then like they share a story with you or anything? I do. There's actually so the the article came about because um, you know I I'm still doing most of my farmers markets, which is something that I'm like as we grow, I'm so reluctant to let go of because that's that opportunity that I get to talk to people face to face and have them tell me you know what they want, what they've experienced, what they you know what products enrich their life, um, and the the article actually came about. Because because I was at my uh, Gloucester farmer's market and this older couple came and they're like, Oh my God, I have a daughter who lives in New York city. And um, she is just like a really outspoken feminist. And I'm going to bring this down to her this weekend. And she's just, she's going to think it's the greatest thing ever. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's me too. Little like, then and they're not saying like, Oh, and by the way, she writes for the New York times. <laughs> oh shit. And they just, yeah, like that's kind of what went on when she called me like six months later. And she's like, oh my God, my parents brought me this cheese that you made. And like, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. And I think what you're doing is so cool. And that's just amazing. Um, and uh, it it was like a really awesome thing to get that call. Like I, she, she left the message and I'm almost like, did I not? Like, I didn't, there's no way I heard that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it was. Um, I actually really enjoyed that, um, that article, especially because we've done a lot of press in the past that all they're doing is, um, you know, talking about us and what we're doing. And this was kind of the first communal, um, article that we'd been in that was talking about not just what we're doing, but that there are female cheesemakers across the country doing the same thing. Yeah. Hell yeah. And their cheese, you know. After, like, we have a um, a really close friend um, in in the Massachusetts uh, Massachusetts Cheese Guild who um, who names all of her cheeses after her grandmothers, and like, you know, has the same kind of um, desire to create this, you know, historical um, connection to women in past generations and you know some of some of those women that she's naming these cheeses after were also farmers and um you know we have there's almost one of my favorite cheeses in that article is a um like a manchego style that's called woman chego it's great i love it and i'm just sitting there like oh like i love like i love what i'm naming my cheeses but the fact that i'm not the only person who's sitting here making this product and being like, I'm going to name it in a way that's just like women are strong and women can be in this profession and women can um, not just be in this profession, but 
thrive and dominate in it. Um, I'm just like sitting there like from like reading this article where I should be like, oh my God, this is so great. It's talking about me. But I'm like, yeah, these other strong women, this is excellent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. That's um, so great. Yeah. I was really, I was so excited about that. <laughs> All right, Aaron, let's go ahead and finish this thing up with some advice for people. So if after listening to this, somebody is still thinks that what you are doing sounds very romantic and like something they would like to do. What advice would you give to somebody that wants to kind of like live the farm lifestyle, whether that be making cheese or, or whatever it is? Um, it's definitely, you know, try and try and see as much as you can um, and go into it open minded, understanding that it's not all it's not all easy and it's not all beautiful but that there's so much beautiful in it. Um, And, you know, that it requires a lot of patience too, because a lot of people are like, I want to, like, we'll have times when people are like, I want to come to your farm and I want to go and I want to go into your cheese room and see what you're doing. And I'm sitting there like, no, like we're, we're at work. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Have to do that middle ground between helping people experience, you know, farming, but also having people recognize that it'd be really strange. Like if, I just like barged into their office and like sat down at them next to their desk and like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, to- that's such so, a good example. Yeah, because that would anyone would think that that sounds crazy, you know? Yeah, um, but you have this, you know, middle ground where like agritourism is becoming a thing and people want to see. And um, there are, you know, there are some farms that are smaller and aren't quite equipped to deal with that yet. And having you know respect for that is a really beautiful thing because. Most of the time, those people, you know, want to talk. And there are some times where, you know, if you come up to them and you say, I really want to talk to you about this, this may not be a good time when is. Most of them are like, oh, my God, this other time is great because I want to share this story with you. Um, So you kind of have to, you have to be patient. Like, you're so excited to learn, but you have to, like, find the right time and place to, you know, slowly be able to integrate yourself into that community. Um and start gaining the experience and once you do like you'll find people like consider bardwell who was willing to take a chance on me and you know they had they had the capacity to have someone sit there and honestly like they they babied me they were sitting there ready to hold my hand and be like let me teach you everything about (laughs) (laughs) and we're the people who are ready to do that are out there and we really want to do that um so that that recommendation that i have is gain as much experience as you can and know that um some of it's not going to be pretty like if you come up to a farmer and you're like i want to help you like you know do this farm you're gonna get put on stall mucking (laughs) and some people are super jazzed about that and they come and they're like i i want to muck stalls for you and i'm like oh my gosh bless you yeah i'm really (laughs) doing it i'm really mucking a stall this is awesome um but it's so worth it because those people who are willing to come here and milk stalls are the people that I get the opportunity now that they've done that to. Like I'm, I've got a woman who's been working with me for a year and she came in and she was, you know, she started, she's like, I just want to volunteer. I'm mucking stalls. And now she is, you know, doing a lot of my barn management. We're teaching her how to make cheese. Like this is, and every time she talks about it, she's like, this is, um, this is what I want to be doing with my life. Um, and I've waited you know, so long to be able to, to experience this. Um, so you really just, you have to kind of 
be be willing to let those opportunities come into your life and to to jump on them when they do because um the more the more experience you have with it the better equipped you'll be to decide whether or not this is something that you really want to do and some people you know they'll do it for a year and they'll be like that was wonderful we have people who come through and they're like i'm going to work for you for a season and past that point they learn everything that they can learn um you know in that period of time and they're like i'm ready to move on and that has its own merit too those are people who are like, I just wanted to learn a little bit more about homesteading and I was able to help you, you know, support this business. And, um, in that I also, I got to use, learn how to make cheese for my family. Um, so some people will, you know, do it and they'll just get to learn the experience and it gives them a greater appreciation for what's on their plate. And some people like me will do the same thing and two weeks in decide this is what they want to do for the rest of their lives. Yes. Love it. <laughs> Both things are totally okay. Like you can go work on a farm because you think it's like beautiful and bucolic and like, don't be disappointed if you're like, yeah, like that was great, but it's not for me. Totally. Like that doesn't like anything bad. It's just like, wow, good on you for even thinking about trying it. Yeah. Really good point. You don't need to get a specific thing out of it. Just take whatever you get out of it for yeah. what it is. And that's it. Absolutely. It, great advice for life all the way around. I'd say. Right. Um, uh, all right, Aaron, this has been so awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I was so happy to. It was great talking with you. Hey, everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview a particular field that you would like to hear about or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show thanks so much for listening you guys 